Hi there and welcome to VetCast. Um, my name's Kat Wilkinson um, and today's podcast is going to be um, the first of a several parts um, looking at trying to summarise the consensus recommendations for standard therapy for glomerular disease in dogs. Um, this was a study um, performed by uh, the iris group, so um, including um, Brown, Elliot, Francie, Poulsen and Vaden. Um, and these recommendations were published in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine in 2013. So um, they're generally available um, for anyone to go and have a look at. But basically, if you're like me, it when I was in uh, trying to read through this stuff... Um, it's very, very time-consuming to, to have a look through. And so the purpose of this podcast is hopefully for you to be able to, to catch up on um, these important papers summarised in a podcast form. So hopefully you can catch up with this um, whilst you're on the go, um, you know, perhaps commuting in your car or um, whilst you're out and about so that you make the use, best use of your time and still catch up on uh, the, the CPD that you want to do. Um so these recommendations um, are using an evidence base um, in order to try and find out the, the standard therapy which should form the, um, the basis of standard or routine care of dogs with glomerular disease. Um, and so I think this is fundamental for, for most of us small animal vets to, um, to try and know, you know, what these recommendations are and some of the evidence bits behind it. So hopefully these um, series of podcasts can help. Um, so first of all, just um, in the introduction to their paper, um, they summarise what is glomerular disease. Um, so glomerular disease is split up um, into both primary and secondary um, Cause. So primary disease is when the process the in, that initiates the renal injury originates in the glomerulus itself. Um, whereas secondary glomerular disease is if the disease starts elsewhere, um, such as tubulo-interstitial disease or a generalised loss of nephrons, um, and then that results in uh, pathological changes to the glomeruli as a kind of secondary effect. Um, well, these recommendations apply to both primary and secondary glomerular disease, regardless of the severity or the cause. Um, so, to a certain extent, we don't need to differentiate between the primary and secondary causes uh, in order to, uh, to base our therapy on it. Um, and the authors point out that whilst um, developing standard recommendations is really important, um, it's really important to remember that this should again be tailored to the individual, um, both dependent on the, the patient's disease severity um, and many other patient factors, you know, client considerations, costs, all that sort of thing. Um, and then... Um, one of the other things that they mention in that um, introduction is that the severity of the glomerular disease is usually reflected in the magnitude of the urine-protein-creatinine ratio. Um, 
So, basically, the first recommendation that the consensus recommendations put together is recommendation one. And I'll read these out um, straight as they are so that, you know, you can really take these away um, as areas to, to remember. So, recommendation one. For the purposes of standard therapy... Sorry, for the purposes of standard therapy recommendations, the magnitude of proteinuria as assessed by serial measurement of the urine-protein-creatinine ratio should be used to make decisions about therapeutic intervention in dogs with glomerular disease. Um, I.e., when you've got a dog with glomerular disease, you need to be making uh, serial regular measurements of the UPCR um, and that's vital in order to see um, what's going on. Um, and why are they making um, some of these um, recommendations? So firstly, um, there is evidence from studies that um, in patients with a UPCR greater than two, um, those patients are associated with a, a greater um, chance of adverse outcomes. Whilst in an experimental model of secondary glomerular disease, it was shown that interventions reduced the UPCR to less interventions that reduced the UPCR to less than 0.5 improved the renal outcomes, the structural renal outcomes. Um, so basically they have shown that things are worse when that UPCR is high and that they have demonstrated that when you bring that down to less than um, 0.5 that there are definite improved outcomes um, there. So recommendation two, intervention with standard therapies should be considered whenever renal proteinuria is causing the UPCR to persistently exceed 0.5 in a dog with glomerular disease, whether the glomerular injury is primary or secondary. In general, a reduction of the UPC to less than 0.5 or a reduction in the UPC of 50% or more should be considered of, as evidence of therapeutic success. Um, so that's also really important. Um, so... It gives us a threshold of when to intervene. So um, if it persistently goes over 0.5, we should be intervening and we aim to get it back below that 0.5 level there. Um, but it's really important to have that um, second part of the thing that potentially a reduction of 50% um, could be considered a success. At the moment, I'm dealing with a, um, a really lovely Cocker Spaniel that's um, called Poppy. Um, She's suffering from a range of um, problems at the moment. She's always had a history of um, chronic pancreatitis. Um, she's had metastatic anal, anal sac adenocarcinoma. Um, and most recently, she's been uh, diagnosed with glomerular disease. And she has a UPCR that started off um, at about 17 and a half. Um, we've currently got that down to about eight and a half so there's a definite improvement there with the therapies that we're doing and we're trying to work uh, to see if we can get that um, down any further um, I doubt we're going to get it below that 0.5 mark um, but the fact that 
um, we've we've got a significant reduction, less than fifty percent of that starting value. I think we should be really pleased um, with that there. Um, so the paper then goes on um, to look at the where the drugs target glomerular disease. Um, so where can we target treatment? Um, and primarily that is through the inhibition of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, the RAS system. Um, and what sort of ways do we target that? Um, we do it with ACE inhibitors, so angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors. We can use angiotensin receptor blockers, aldosterone receptor blockers, combinations of the, the drugs, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, but the paper starts to get into um, all of this, and I don't know if you're like me, every time I have to look at the, uh, the RAS system and really get my head around it, I need to go back to basics before I move into why we're using the, um, the particular drugs. So just in this um, first bit in the series of podcasts, um, I'm just going to remind you um, how that renin-angiotensin um, system works, particularly you know where, how it's working and why it has the functions it does in a normal, happy, healthy patient. Um, so firstly, why do we even look at this um, there? And it's certainly, it's basically, it's been shown that um, the movement of the proteins across the glomerulus is affected by hemodynamic forces um, and therefore adjusting those renal hemodynamics um, logically would make sense to reduce the protein urea. So that kind of explains why we target this system here. Um, and then it's just about trying to work out where in the pathways we can do it. So firstly, just a reminder about those uh, pathways. So when our blood pressure drops, um, our body utilises that RAS system um, in order to improve our blood pressure and ensure that um, our kidneys stay working efficiently even during periods of hypertension. Um, and so let's use that as an example of, of when the RAS system might be activated in, in the body. So if our blood pressure starts to drop a little bit, um, the kidneys start to um, release renin. Um, so the renin is released by the kidneys um, and the renin is used to convert angiotensinogen, which is made in the liver, into angiotensin 1. Um, so that's the first stage. Angiotensinogen to angiotensin 1 um, and that is precipitated by renin and that renin is released by the kidneys when the blood pressure is, um, drops. Angiotensin 1 is then converted into angiotensin 2 using uh, angiotensin converting enzymes, the ACEs. Okay, those uh, angiotensin converting enzymes are produced in the lungs. Um, and it's once you've got to the point where you have released uh, angiotensin 2 into the body, that is the big hitter, basically. That is the, um, the, 
um, the thing that goes around the body and has a massive effect. Um, and so if we can control this pathway a bit, we can stop a lot of these effects happening. Um, so firstly, angiotensin 2, you know, how does it actually work and what does it do directly itself? Um, and then what does it kind of cause other to else to change in the body? So um, overall, it says the, the name gives it away. It's called angiotensin. So it causes constriction of the blood vessels um, when it is released. And it causes enough constriction of those blood vessels to try and help maintain the blood pressure. Um, but it works a little bit harder in the, the kidneys to ensure that there's sufficient blood pressure um, in the glomerulus. Um, and the way it does this um, is that it constricts the efferent vessels a little bit more than it constricts the afferent vessels into the glomerulus. I.e. if you think of a hose pipe with water flowing through it and the, someone's turned the tap down so that it is no longer flowing quite so hard. If you squeeze it a little bit in the middle, you can actually cause a backup um, there. And so the pressure behind where you have squeezed it means that that pressure starts to build again. Um, and that's what it does in the, um, in the glomerulus. Um, it makes it harder for the blood to leave the glomerulus than for blood to enter it. Therefore, the blood backs up and the pressure within the glomerulus is maintained. Um, and obviously that's all normally a, um, a good thing, but in, um, in a disease process, that's not always what you're, you're wanting to happen. Um, angiotensin also causes um, sodium absorption in the renal, renal tubule. Um, water obviously follows and therefore you get more fluid in the blood um, and that blood pressure will improve a little bit. Um, it then, angiotensin causes, angiotensin 2 causes the release of two further hormones um, which have their effect. So it causes the release of aldosterone um, and the release of angiotensin, um, of vasopressin or antidiuretic hormone. So um, a reminder about aldosterone obviously it's got loads of jobs in the body um but importantly here when we're talking about um renal disease um it increases sodium resorption and therefore increases water retention um and importantly it secretes potassium back into the urine um and then lastly with the vasopressin that's released from the pituitary glands um Yet another hormone that's involved in water reabsorption, this time from the distal tubules and the collecting ducts. Um, but regardless of the, the mechanism, fundamentally, it causes that uh, water to be retained in the bloodstream and therefore the blood pressure to, to rise a little bit um, there. In addition, vasopressin, um, it's, again... The name kind of gives it away. It causes constriction of those blood vessels enough to help try and improve the um, the blood pressure there. Um, so again, where are we looking to target treatment? We're trying to um, target those angiotensin converting enzymes by using ACE inhibitor. 
Um, we are trying to stop the conversion, um, the, the action of angiotensin um, directly. So you can use angiotensin receptor blockers um, and you can also stop the effects of um, aldosterone. So you can do um, aldosterone receptor blockers. Um, you can do combinations of drugs. Um, and also there are renin inhibitors. These aren't used much in um, veterinary use at, at the moment, although there is a little bit of exploration in, in human medicine at this stage to, um, to try and find uh, whether they are um, of use in, in this sort of um, illnesses here. So hopefully today's podcast has just been a quick background on that, uh, that RAS system, remind you of exactly what's going on. When we do uh, the podcast next time, um, we're going to be looking at going into a little bit more detail about how some of those drugs work. So uh, the ACE inhibitors, the angiotensin receptor blockers um, and the aldosterone receptor uh, antagonists. So um, I hope you'll join me then and um, we can go through the further bits of the consensus statement next time. Okay, thanks very much.